Amen. All right, uh, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for fellowship. Thank you for the great worship we've had already thus far. Lord, we pray that as we read your scriptures, we would imitate your son, that we would grow in his likeness, that we would look at the story of um, Paul's life and really see in our own story where we could participate in that story. Lord, thank you for the kindness you show us every morning, and thank you for the faithfulness you've given us. In Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we've been studying um, Galatians for, 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 this is week four, and we're taking the slow approach in Galatians, and today what we're going to talk about is Galatians chapter two. In Galatians chapter two, Paul continues that kind of his journey and how everything worked. But before we go there, I want us to go to first Corinthians chapter 15. Again, it's really important that we start here because it's here that we get a probably the long form version of Paul's explanation of the gospel. And so when Paul is using this word, I'm almost certain he has first Corinthians 15 in mind. Even though 1 Corinthians 15 was more than likely written later. <laughs> so let's go to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He, was, he knew he was going to write that to that group. He just saw them after he was done planting. He's like, I got a huge letter coming your way. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you take your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I receive, I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appealed to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. Verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruit, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father after he has destroyed all dominions, authorities, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when he says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who puts everything under Christ. When he has, when he has done this, the son will himself be subject to him who puts everything under him so that God may be all in all. Again, this is a great starting place when Paul uses the word gospel that we're going to read in Galatians chapter 2. And so what, I'm, what is Paul basically saying? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 
When Paul says that he died for our sins, the sin here that he's talking about, I know for many of us who may not read the Old Testament, it's connected to the Old Testament, that when the people of Israel committed however many sins that they committed in Deuteronomy 29, it promised that they would be exiled, and it was a result of their sin. And so when the Christ, the Messiah, died, those sins were forgiven, and exile was able to come to a conclusion. And so when he dealt with sin... He dealt with the penalty of the law for the Israelites and ultimately for the whole world. He dealt with the power of Satan. And so this announcement that Israel's Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, was condemned as a criminal, but vindicated by God through the resurrection is what Paul announced everywhere he went when he began his ministry. He said in Galatians chapter one that that was revealed to him by Jesus. He did not get that from anyone. So not only is Jesus Israel's Messiah, But he's now the Lord of the whole world. And in his resurrection, he proves that death is destroyed. And so what's really important here is what's not mentioned, that Paul is having huge contention here with the group in Galatia. And that is anything about circumcision. When he announced the gospel, he did not mention that one thing about circumcision here in this summary of what the gospel is. With that, let's go to Galatians chapter two. Galatians chapter two, beginning in verse one. Then after 14 years. I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along. Also, I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I wasn't running That I I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedoms we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give into them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does, God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised. Just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also in work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they ask is that we continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do all along. You know, Paul, in his ministry, viewed his task as the utmost importance. And just to give you some, a refresher of our first lesson, the, critique, the criticism against Paul right now is that he's relaxing biblical requirements. And so there is a Jewish contingency in Galatia who are like, man, these guys are like half-breeds. They're kind of not like fully in the covenant. And who is the one telling them that they don't have to fully embrace the covenant? It's this guy Paul, and he's causing the issues. He's relaxing what God demands of his people. And again, part of that is also the social um, pressure that Paul is, I mean, that the, the group is feeling because 
if the Romans find out that there are a group of people not being circumcised, then why are they receiving the privileges that they get as um, Jewish citizens? Why aren't they involved in community worship like everyone else? So more than likely, that theological and that social component is playing a huge role in this conversation. And so Paul says, I came to Jerusalem in response to a revelation. Like Paul heard the word of God and said, I got to go to Jerusalem. I got to figure it out. And more than likely, Acts chapter 11, which we're going to read together, is what Paul is talking about here. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. It is this part that I think Paul, when he says he came to Jerusalem in response to a revelation, is what he's talking about here. Acts chapter 11, verse 27 through 30. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And so imagine this situation. Paul gets word that there's going to be a huge famine. And he's like, I, I'm so eager to help my, my, my fellow Christians, my fellow people in Judea. And so he and Barnabas go over there to connect and bring the gift to the people. But while he's over there, he says, I want to have a private conversation with the apostles while I'm here. You know how important people do those sort of things. <laughs> you know, and he, so he goes over there and he's like, I want to talk to the apostles trained by Jesus. And he says, hey, guys, I've been preaching this gospel, what we read in 1 Corinthians 15. I've been preaching this gospel. I've been telling people this. What do you guys think? And they're like, brother, that's in line. We've been preaching the same thing, too. And then Paul probably shared about how people were responding to the gospel and how he saw work of the spirit amongst the people. And they were like, this is awesome. This is good. And he's like, so no issues with what I'm saying. No, man, this this. This is amazing. You see, Paul was concerned already. There was growing concern in the community that what Paul and Barnabas were doing may not have actually been helping people become Christians. Like they were they or, 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 or the real people of God because they were lacking the circumcision. And so Paul gives this echo of Isaiah 49. Let's go there and read it. So in the scriptures, when, when you hear echo, it's like it's kind of like the background of what Paul is talking about when you hear terms like echoes. And this is an echo right here in Isaiah 49. Isaiah is in the middle of your Bible. If you have an actual Bible and if you don't, you're using your app. I S A is Isaiah. And when you get there, go to 49. Isaiah is like a good guess. Go in the middle. You're either going to get Psalms or you're going to get Isaiah. Unless your, your, your proportions are off. And if it's off, then the Lord be with you. Um, Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 4. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand. My reward is with God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, my God, and, have, and my God has been my strength. And he says, is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will make you a light. 
to the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. You know, a lot of times when we read Isaiah, we definitely see messianic prophecy. But, you know, it's very clear, especially from Second Temple literature and even a little after that, a lot of the Christians saw themselves as Isaiah's servant, too. They saw themselves as I am the servant that God is talking about. And so when Paul says, am I running in vain? He's like, I know I got this message from Jesus. I know Jesus gave me this message, but clearly I'm hearing the controversy about circumcision. Guys, are we on the same page? I actually don't think Paul thought he was wrong. I think he went into that conversation with Peter, James, and and John, and he was ready to correct them. He was ready to help them have a better understanding of the gospel because he's like, I got blinded on the road to Damascus. I talked to the Lord. He told me the gospel, and you guys seem to not be preaching what is happening out here. You see, Paul wrestled with the scriptures. He wrestled with its implications. That almost feels like a dying thing now. You know, wrestling with the text, wrestling with the scriptures, we just take for granted. You know, a lot of times we take for granted. Like, we got incredible teachers, like the Bible Project people. Incredible teachers, like the Baymaw crew. Incredible, and I could go on and on with no lights, lights on, it doesn't matter. I could go on and on. We got incredible incredible communicators, sometimes we stop wrestling with the scriptures. Let's go to Acts chapter 17. You see, wrestling with the scriptures is one of the most fundamental things we can do if we're going to be a light to the nations. We wrestle individually and we wrestle collectively. Acts chapter 17, verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. We read this passage sometimes when we're trying to help our friends get consistent with reading the Bible. But I think sometimes we only do it on that end and if we forget to do it on the other end. Well, we're like, man, here's the Berean challenge. Read the scriptures. How often do we listen to podcasts, listen to me with open Bibles and say, let me see if I agree with Steve. The fellowship will be healthier for it, believe it or not. If you're like, oh, here, here, this guy's saying this and I don't know if I believe him. And that's okay. A healthy degree of skepticism. Now, there's a negative degree of skepticism that manifests in cynicism that we don't want. But a healthy degree of skepticism is good. It actually matures God's people. Well, we can sit back and say, you know, Steve said that this situation with Paul, it was an echo of Isaiah 49. I don't know if I agree. And what's the implications of me not agreeing? Well, if he then we can have a conversation about that. But a lot of times we don't even wrestle with scriptures. We just take it on default. You know, that a big, big reason for that is because most of us in here grew up going to church to some extent. And so we operate with a cultural Christianity that may not even be biblical Christianity. Mm-hmm. Where we're like, oh, yeah, this is just what we do. This is what instead of even knowing why we do whatever it is that we do. Yeah. Being a Berean, wrestling with the text. I'm almost certain Paul felt confident going to Peter. James and John because he was wrestling with the text. He got that revelation, but it wasn't just the revelation. He had the impact of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just that. He also was like, I know these scriptures and it makes sense in light of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Guys, 
we have the very words of the living God in our hands or in our phones, and we could be a blessing to the nations, we could be a light to the nations, if we would just wrestle with the text. If we would just wrestle, if we would assume because of the resurrection, Christ is right. If he didn't raise from the dead, he is one voice among many, and his voice doesn't really matter that much. But if he rose from the dead, then his voice is right, and how do we wrestle with that voice? And even more than wrestle, how do we submit? Amen. <laughs> you know, what, what Paul was getting at here, he used some very rosy language. Paul uses a lot of rosy language in, in Galatia. Um, but it was a new exodus. He was like, we've been set free. He's like, this gospel has set us free. Freedom language was the language of the Israelites when they were set free from Pharaoh. And he's like, we've been set free. And these people who are trying to get you to be circumcised are trying to put you back into slavery. So imagine you're hanging out. Barnabas is a Jew. Paul's a Jew. They're all hanging out. And they see Titus. They recognize the name Titus is a Greek name. I'm almost certain there wasn't no public bath or anything like that in this situation. Now he's here. And... You know, everyone's talking about being covenant members and they're probably eating and having fellowship. And maybe one or two brothers was like moving just a little bit this way when they were having fellowship with Titus because they're like, we don't really eat with that dude. Mm-hmm. And then Titus was probably like, hey, what are they doing? And then Paul probably means in, I think there's a doctrinal issue happening here, Titus. It, I think it's about circumcision. And Titus looks at Paul, it ain't happening. It ain't happening. <laughs> it ain't happening. I'll eat by myself. And so Titus is like, I'm not going to give in even for a moment. (laughs) And then Paul's like, amen, brother. (laughs) But it started right there in that private meeting. More than likely, Titus was sitting there and he's like, why aren't these guys treating me like a brother? We're having fellowship. Why aren't they doing that? And Paul's like, I just talked to the guys about the gospel. So we believe that at that core, that's what we believe. But there's something else happening here. You see, in the Second Temple period, no one believed a Gentile could fully be a covenant member of God's people without being circumcised. The historian Josephus talks about a king who embraced monotheism, embraced Judaism, and he was like, I want to be a Jew without being circumcised because otherwise I, won't lo- I will lose the influence of the Gentiles that I'm leading. And I want to guide them forward. But the priests had such a strong conviction. They're like, you're either in or you're out. And the end is circumcision. And if you don't do that, you're out. I share that to say that's how serious they took circumcision. This is some 30 years after Galatians that Josephus is sharing this story about how serious they take circumcision. And so for Paul and the Gentiles in this church to be claiming the God of Israel and not being circumcised was a huge challenge for the brothers and sisters who grew up Jewish. A huge challenge. Titus's presence brought social disruption to the Jews. But Jesus said that. Jesus said that the gospel would divide. He said brother against sister, mother-in-law against son-in-law, all this other stuff. Now, sometimes we have issues with our in-laws and it has nothing to do with the gospel. And so to that end... I say repent. But when it's the gospel, the gospel does challenge us on all levels. On all levels, it challenges me. You see, Paul is going to get to the point next week, we're going to talk more about it, but circumcision, to get circumcised in hopes of being a covenant member is to deny the truth of the gospel. If you say, I'm going to do this so I could truly be the people of God, he's like, just scratch the whole project. Scratch the whole project. You don't get this. 
you, you, you have fallen from grace. For Paul to be circumcised was to go back into slavery. And here's, here's the crazy thing. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, he says he rescued us from this present evil age. Who was he rescuing? The people of Israel and the Gentiles. And so he's like, to say that whatever kept the, um, the Jews in the present evil age is going to help you, he's like, you missed the point. It was Christ who rescued us from the present evil age, not Torah, in particular the cultural markers of circumcision. You see, Torah was under the present evil age as well. God's people were exiled from their land. And he's like, how, how can the thing that didn't even bring the solution be the solution? It makes no sense. You know, so circumcision, if the Gentiles weren't circumcised, to many people, they weren't full members of the covenant. And there was a working theme. One of the rabbis that I was reading said, God has two families. He has Ishmael and that tribe that are not really the people of God. And he has Isaac, the people of the promise. Paul's going to pick up on that teaching in chapter four. But he, Think about it. They're like, you guys are like Ishmael right now. Yeah, kind of, sort of, you're in. But what happened to Ishmael? We kicked that brother out. He's out there in the wilderness with his mom. That's such a sad story, honestly. But that's what they're trying to communicate. And so these, these um, rival teachers are like, Paul, we are actually trying to do good. We want them to be covenant members, and you need to work at that. And so... Jesus' gospel is a gospel of freedom. Jesus' gospel is a gospel of freedom. Jesus ends the covenant curse through his faithfulness to the covenant. Freedom from law and flesh. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus brings freedom from law and flesh. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. I mean, beginning in verse 1. After you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the rulers of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. The world, the flesh, the spirit, all there, Jesus defeats all of them. But how does Jesus do it? And how do, as his followers, how do we participate in that? Matthew 7, verse 13. Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Freedom. Jesus gives us freedom. And how do we find it? Through the narrow gate. You know, freedom is one of those words in our cultural moment that is laced with meaning from 2023, but it was different for the folks in the first century. Mm-hmm. You know, Alan Noble, um, sociologist, says freedom now is the absence of constraints. Tim Keller says modern freedom is freedom of self-assertion. I am free if I, if I may do whatever I want, but defining freedom this way 
as the absence of constraint or choice is unworkable because it's impossible, Tim Keller says. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, and of the universe and the mystery of human life. So freedom now in this present age is what we make it to be, but that isn't necessarily what the scriptures taught. And when tried to live that, tried to live it out practically, it isn't necessarily even doable. I give you an example: a 60-year-old man who eats the worst diet you can imagine, but he has a couple of kids and he, a couple of grandkids, and he wants to spend time with them. He wants to play with them. He wants to connect with them. But his doctor says, "Hey." If you keep eating, however it is that you keep eating, eventually you're going to, what they call it, you're, you're going to have a heart attack, something's going to happen, and you won't be able to play with your grandkids. So this grandfather has to make a choice on the freedoms that he's going to yield to. Does he want to eat whatever it is he like, or does he want to spend time with his grandkids? He has a choice before him. You know, sometimes we think in the illusion of freedom that we have maximum opportunity to take advantage of every single choice. No, every single choice we make, we miss out on another one. And so we have to decide what's the best choice. What freedom is the most important? What freedom is the most truly and liberating one? You see, real freedom comes from strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain others. And so the question becomes, okay, how do we define freedom? How do we even define something like harm? How do we define these things? You know, without an appeal to someone like God, harm becomes extremely relative. Extremely relative. You know, I think one of the the growing things I can appreciate, but I also want to challenge in our culture, is we're more sensitive to harming people. But sometimes certain things that may appear harmful on the surface are actually pretty good for you. Like, if Stephen was here presently, he would be like, Julian makes him eat vegetables. <laughs> he, he would cry oppression. You know, he'd be like, I don't know if my mom's a good mother. He's making me eat vegetables. <laughs> and so in that unique situation, if we were to interview Stephen, he's like, that was harmful. And, and then we would say, Stephen, that's, come on, Stephen. Like, she's trying to help you. She's actually working to your benefit. And so, again, harm without an appeal to a higher power, to God, honestly, to the scriptures, becomes really relative and becomes tricky to negotiate. That doesn't mean secular thoughts do not have great ideas or great definitions of what harm is, but it just becomes tricky. It almost becomes a, what is the hot button of today? You see, I believe our deepest desire is to be made in the image of God. I mean, our deepest desire, since we are made in the image of God, is to, people, to be people who love well according to the way of Jesus. Like, believe it or not, I think all of us, even when we're in our rebellion, we really desire that. Now, sometimes we think we can accomplish that without any reference to Jesus, without any reference to God, or without any reference to the Spirit, but that's, who we, that's what we deeply desire. You see, the gospel frees us to love well. It frees us to love well according to Jesus. You see, freedom, biblically speaking, is ordered love. It's getting all of our loves in the right order. You mess up any of the orders of the love, your life and the people you love are going to be burdened. But if you get it in the right order, 
your love becomes an oasis. Your love becomes life-giving. You know, Robert Bella says, for Americans, freedom is the most important value. But the challenge is, again, in our secular age, in our secular moment, truth and morals are relative. And so how do we even decide what is freedom and how we negotiate that as a multicultural society? Jesus says freedom is found in his gospel. Freedom is the ability to be set free from sin, the powers of the world, to be able to love well according to how he defines love. Let's go to the next slide. And so the spirit leads the people of God. The spirit leads the people of God. You know, in verse 7 through 10, Paul is talking about what Barnabas, I mean, what um, James, Peter, and John saw in his ministry. And he's like, they saw God at work. They saw it. And He's like, we recognize his work with the, with the circumcised, and we recognize their work with the uncircumcised. But in this conversation, Paul says, none of those guys added to my message. So what I have been announcing the whole time, they were like, it's good. And think about the implications of that. If they said it was good and they gave me the right hand of fellowship, then the fact that I'm not circumcising Gentiles means that's good. They recognize it. They didn't see anything wrong with this. They saw God at work. And they said, oh, there's also a huge burden that's happening out here with um, the poverty and everything else. I mean, with the famine and everything else. And Paul collected money from Gentiles and gave it to the Jerusalem church. You want to know how, who, who your family is? Ask for money. <laughs> like you, you cross a different line when you can get money from people. In our, in our, in our culture, I would say $500... That's big money. Paul brought more than $500 over their equivalent. But he brought that to them because he's like, we are family. That we're going to meet your needs. We're going to help you. And no one in that group said, hey, that's Gentile money. Let's leave it out. I'm almost certain they all were like, give me that money, man. It's tough out here. They accepted it. And Paul wanted the Gentiles to see that. He's like, they accepted us because we are family. When I said there's one family in Christ, there's only one. And we serve them and love them the way we look after our own family. So when when they say, remember the poor, this is probably the conversation. Paul was like, what do you think about my gospel? What do you think about this? And he's like, all of that's really good. But don't forget why you came here. (laughs) Agabus said there was going to be a severe famine. Take care of the poor. And he's like, that's the very thing we came here to do. That's what we were eager to do in the first place. I just want to have this conversation with you on the side. You know, still in America, the economic um, experiment of the gospel is very challenging. Most churches are are homogenous when it comes to the economic bracket. Mm -hmm. Wealthy churches, only most people in wealthy churches are all wealthy. Most people in middle churches, middle class churches are all middle class. Most people in poor churches, you seldomly see like, oh man, in this fellowship, they got the Fortune 500 guy here and they got the guy who lives on the street. And they're in fellowship and they're even in the same community group. That's rare. You really don't see that because usually you're like, I don't know. It's going to be weird. It's going to be awkward. And we, we and, I, and I get why the government did it. I'm not mad at why the government. We have layers to protect us from being generous with our resources. So we're like, I don't want to give to you, but I give to benevolence. If someone really needs help. 
that's not what the early church did. They took their resources and they shared. Yeah, absolutely. They shared powerfully. And they weren't communists. So some of you are worried about communism. They weren't communists. They wasn't even thinking like that. They were like, there was a need and I want to give to the people. There was a need and I want to serve. I get that there might be bad actors out there who would take advantage of the church. I'm almost certain if Paul was present with us right now, he's like, there definitely were bad actors taking advantage of the church. But we recognize that our gifts and our resources was an opportunity to be a blessing. In verse 7 of Galatians, they said they recognized that I had been entrusted with the gospel. And in verse 8, for God who was at work in Peter as an apostle was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. Apostle to the circumcised and apostle to the Gentiles. I, I, I sat on that passage for a while. I was like, do we recognize where God is at work? Do we look and say, I think God is working here. God is doing something incredible. I, I wonder if many of us would even know if we were looking at the work of God. And I said, blatantly have like a t-shirt on here. This is the work of God. <laughs> like, oh, that's what they're doing. They're doing the work of God. But do you recognize it? I believe we have goals that we want to accomplish as a fellowship. We want to be able to be a blessing. We want to, 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 to steal the phrase, important as it is in heaven. We want that. And yet God's Holy Spirit is working right now in different places. And there's an open door of invitation for us to partner. But I wonder if we even recognize the work of God. I think sometimes we get hung up on important things, but they're not the most important thing. You know, we want to make sure we have sound, healthy doctrine that honors Jesus, that forms people into the faithfulness of Christ. But sometimes if we're feeding people, let's just feed people. We can have the conversation of the doctrine and all that other stuff later. Let's get food in people's belly. If we're talking about like, oh, man, I'm seeing the childhood poverty right over there in Preble Street. I drive through and I'm like, there's too many kids on this street. And if there is an atheist organization that's like, man, but we want to help the, the kids. I say, let's partner with them. We don't need to figure out, like, how do we do this to put this on? It's all about helping people. Involved. Can we recognize the work of God still? I think it goes back to wrestling with the scriptures. If you wrestle with the scriptures, you'll be able to see, I think God is moving in this situation and I want to partner with him. A lot of times partnering with God almost guarantees you won't get the credit. It almost guarantees it. So if you're someone who's like, I want the credit, then do it by yourself. If you're doing it with God, everyone gets remembered but you for whatever reason, especially if you struggle with that kind of stuff. If you struggle with, like, I want to be recognized for the work that I'm doing, everyone will get recognized. You'll be like, remember when we went to go help those kids in Preble Street? Connor was there. Mark was there. Heather was there. And James was like, I was there. I was there. I was there. He shot me out. He shot me out. He comes up to me. Bro, I was there. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, you were there. You going to tell them next week? I'm like, nah, I don't think so. I think I might even forget about it. <laughs> Partnering with God requires a great degree of humility. Because he's going to be the main character. He's going to be the main character. You know there were 12 apostles. We never hear about the rest of the guys. When we see them on the day of the resurrection, they're going to be hanging out. They'll be like, you know we did stuff too. (laughs) We just run. (laughs) And when Acts kind of forgot us, we were doing ministry stuff. Just to be clear. He'd be like, I recognize it. I mean, why would he have chosen you if he didn't do something? We just don't know what you did. (laughs) (laughs) Can we recognize the work of God? 
Can we recognize the work of God? To, to wrap up here, Paul was not, they did not say to Paul, man, make sure you preach circumcision. They said, make sure you don't forget the poor. That was the message that they left him with. And so when Paul is going to bring up an interaction that comes later when the apostles visit in Antioch, he's going to be like, I didn't forget the poor, but it seems like you added something from our last conversation. Let's have a moment of reflection. Let's think about the ways we could. We can notice the work of God. Take a moment just to reflect and then we'll pray for communion.